welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining today. Uh, if you could please review the show, give it stars, thumbs up, uh, share the show with a friend, tag a friend, all of that is greatly appreciated to help get uh, this information out there to others. Um, and if you wish to go so far as to support me financially and keep the lights on, feel free to go to patreon.com and search for Governed by God and sign up as a monthly supporter. And I appreciate you if you have already done that. With that said, let's get into uh, the show today. Before we um, hit onto the main topic, I want to do a kind of a law of the day by taking a look at one law from the Old Testament, um, just expositing it and seeing how um, it might apply today uh, in a, from a Christian perspective. So uh, let's take a look at the law today is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And here's what it says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. All right, that law given to the people of Israel through Moses uh, is certainly part of the uh, old covenant or constitution of the theocratic nation of Israel. What we see here is that when Israel decides to put a, put a king over them, and when they end up deciding to do that later on, in First Samuel, God warns them about it because they're they're doing it to look like the nations around them. So there is a a judgment that's given against Israel when they uh, kind of reject God as their king and they decide to look like the other nations. Um, but here God does say that He He allows for them to establish a king, but it has to be the way God says it in accordance with God's will, not not like other nations, whether it's the uh, Ammonites or the Canaanites or the Egyptians, uh, Assyrians, whoever, whoever it may be, they're not to be like that. Uh, the king is to be chosen from among the covenant people, not to be, um, not to be a foreigner um, or to be uh, someone who does not have, let's say, um, Israel's best interests at heart. So the idea here is that you put the person in charge of the organization 
who is part of the organization um, and who is not outside of that organization. Since basically if you were to do that, you're kind of setting the stage for the failure of the organization. If Israel were to pick a non-Israelite to be in charge of them, they're essentially selling their nation to someone else, someone who might not have their best interests at heart. So the, the king is to be from among them, okay, so that they don't become enslaved to foreign nations. Now, at the same time, um, this king is not to acquire too much material wealth and possessions. Uh, that could be horses, so horses a sign of prestige and wealth, but also military power. So there's to be a limit to the um, military, the strength of this king, not too many wives, okay? So he's not to give in to his fleshly desires and to just accumulate all these wives for himself, um, which ultimately would lead his heart astray. And this is certainly what happens with uh, King Solomon. And he's not to acquire too much gold, of course, uh, in order to, again, avoid that temptation of, of greed and just material possessions uh, there. So uh, to be a humble, a humble person. One thing that's interesting in this is that God describes this as happening as you may indeed set a king over you. Now, we kind of just breeze over that, that phrase, but the idea there is that the people end up selecting a king. This is not to say that it's a democracy, but the point here is that all rulers, all governments, always, they, they're chosen by the people covenantally. There's a covenantal aspect to this, and rulers come out from the people. And it might not necessarily be democratic voting process, you know, voting booths, paper ballots, things like that. A leader can be chosen. Uh, some countries chose their rulers by casting lots, basically random chance or a lottery system, um, or even a mob rule. Uh, you, one can just think about in the Gospels where the crowd tries to make Jesus king by force, and he gets away and doesn't want that to happen. The idea being that the mob can sometimes just make a king in that moment. But however the people go about doing it, and in that day and age, you would have had elders of families, so heads of households, elders of clans and tribes are getting together, and from among themselves, these elders, electors, if you will, are choosing or selecting a king. Now that could be, again, it could be by casting of lots, it could be uh, via the priesthood, which we do see with Samuel um, uh, being guided by God to select uh, Saul as king. But then later on when David is selected, the people affirm it. There's a, there is a covenantal agreement going on where the people affirm, affirm uh, David. So regardless though, the point is, is that leaders always arise out of a nation. And one other thing to keep in mind in this law is that in the last half, we see that the king is to write a copy of the book of the law for himself. And this copy is to be approved by the priest. So essentially, he needs to write a copy of the constitutional 
document and his work has to be graded by the priesthood. So what we see here is that the king himself is to be in submission to the covenant document, the law of the land, which is the Old Testament law summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the king has to make a copy of it himself. He is to know it. He is to internalize it. He is to learn it and love it so that he can apply it and enforce it. And there is a form of checks and balances where the the priesthood has to check his work to make sure that he did it right. And if he didn't do it right, presumably he would have to do it again. He'd have to correct his work. So, all right. Basic summary there. No one is above the law, especially the king. The king is under the law. He is not, there's no divine right of kings um, that we see in the Middle Ages where they have like absolute authority. No, the king is always under the authority of the overarching covenant document. Now, how do you, how do we apply the law? We've seen it in its context, how it worked for Israel. What about today? Well, we do see the same principles um, apply. You know, we have Jesus as our king today, all right, who perfectly was humble and in perfect submission to the Father. He did not give in to the temptations that were presented to him, and he knew the law, and he is the giver of the word. He is the word incarnate. So uh, we have Christ as our king, and that's our, as Christians, that's our monarch. He's our, our Lord and our king. So, but he's also established a kingdom, and we see that as citizens of the kingdom, we gather together in the church. So how the church is to function as the new covenant people with, with Christ as our king, we have governors over us. Who are those governors? Well, elders. And those elders, those under shepherds of the flock are to be in submission to the ultimate shepherd, Christ himself. And we see uh, in the New Testament that the, the congregation is to select elders from among them to be their their rulers and there's and there are certain criteria to be met and very much similar criteria to what we see for the kings of Israel they're there to be the husband of, of one wife they're not to be subject to greed or gluttony or drunkenness they're to have self-control okay not to be given over to anger but to be able to manage their household well also they need to be believers they can't even they shouldn't even be new believers either lest they be tempted by the authority that they have so we see a parallel here with how rulers are to be selected within the church these elders are in submission to a higher authority well who is that higher authority it's christ and it's the word of god it's god and his word and the elders, as the uh, rulers in the church, are to be under that authority, but they are to arise out from the congregation, and they are to be humble and self-controlled, and they're not to be unbelievers. It would make no sense for the church to bring in an atheist or a Muslim or a Buddhist as, as its elder uh, in the church, because what you're doing right there is you're basically sowing the seeds for the destruction of that particular church. That person does not have uh, the church's interest at heart, and they are not in submission to King Jesus. So that's how we would apply that to the church. But let's say, are there some principles 
that we can apply to other organizations. And I think I think there are. These principles apply to any organization. Any organization that wishes to uh, to survive has a vested interest in maintaining its own existence. And how does that happen? By the organization appointing leaders for, that arose from within that organization. And as soon as that organization gives itself over to the authority outside, it's kind of sowing the seeds for its own destruction. It's undermining its own existence. Um, and this is true for nations, for corporations, for businesses, for any kind of gathering, uh, covenantal gathering of people. So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. And, and applying this to the national level, Again, leaders should be chosen from among their people. They represent their people. They should have their people's best interest at heart. The rulers should agree to the covenant documents, and they should know those documents and be able to apply them well. Um, those documents are the final authority. Again, this could be the bylaws of a corporation, um, and it could be the, the constitution of a country. And to give just one example... Even in the United States, we see that the president is supposed to be a natural-born citizen who has lived here for at least 14 years. Uh, and that, that person swears an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So presumably, the president should know what the Constitution says, have internalized it, and seek to uphold and apply it. But it would make no sense for our nation to, let's say, select the president of China uh, to become our president. That makes no sense. By doing something like that, you would basically be handing our country over to another nation, another ruler uh, who does not have our best interests at heart. So any organization to survive must have leaders that have its best interest at heart. All right, so that is just a brief uh, example of our law of the day today. Now, I the topic I want to talk about next is really the foundation of law itself. We already talked about um, a couple weeks ago about how to apply, interpret the law, and uh, now I want to take a look at the foundation of law itself. So kind of the, the question is, what is law? What is this foundation? And how do we relate um God's law versus man's law, you know, and especially what happens when they don't agree with each other, which is more often than not the case, and that's uh, really a sad thing. But it, but it's the, but it is something we have to address as Christians. So first of all, at its core foundation, a law is is simply placing an obligation upon somebody else. Okay, and that could be mutually agreed upon with all people involved. It could be dictated by one upon another particularly the person that has the power, has the weapons, you know, has the strength, basically, the dictates, this is, this is what I want you to do, this is what you need to do, this is an obligation I place upon you. So it's, it's now a law. Laws always have the power of coercion behind them. I mean, when you, when you obligate someone to do something, what is hidden, it's not, you're not asking them nicely. That's not how this works. Obligations have or theoretically, have teeth behind them. If you're obligated to do something, it means that if you don't do it, bad things happen, or something bad should happen, or you're in trouble in some way. 
Now, there are many times that laws don't get enforced, um, but that's really the fault of the uh, that's the fault of the person giving the law, whether it's the parent that's not holding the children accountable to, you know, clean your room. No, I'm not going to clean my room. Okay. I mean, if you don't enforce anything, um, the law has no teeth. But theoretically, though, in its essence, the law is backed up by coercion. Additionally, the law always serves a greater purpose. It always has a greater intent. There's a reason for that law to exist. And it reflects the nature of the lawgiver. You can tell a lot about the person giving the law by looking at the law itself. So it reflects the nature of the lawgiver. And all laws have lawgivers. They come from somebody. There's some kind of standard. So what about God's law and man's law? Uh, God's law reflects his nature. And we see that in a couple of different ways. We see in... uh, in uh, general revelation, in nature, we see uh, God's character in how he has ordered nature to take place and to, and to function. The heavens declare the glory of God, as uh, Psalm 19 says. So um, we, we have a picture of God's character uh, all around us. But we also see his character and his nature given in the Word of God, in the Bible itself, special revelation. Now, is God's law seen in both? The answer is yes. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2 when he says that Gentiles who do not have the law, and he's talking about um, the law of uh, the Old Testament. They don't have the Hebrew scriptures. But when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things um, according to the law, they are in effect a law for themselves. So, the idea there being that Gentile nations have a concept of, let's say, murder or, or property ownership or theft or whatnot. So sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it right. Uh, their moral compass uh, functions a little bit, and that's all by the grace of, grace of God uh, there. And it's by his revealing of his nature and his law throughout creation. And as humans, we have a sense of God's requirements upon us. Um, but again, the, the compass is often broken. It doesn't point north like it should. And so even though we have a general concept of, of let's say, marriage or, or murder or property, there's always an area in which it's, it's skewed a little bit and we, we mess it up. Um, and that's why we do need God's explicit law to guide us to correct us to kind of recage the the compass so that it points in the proper direction now in either case god's law is one law there is one law of god it is revealed in nature and it's revealed in scripture and they're not contradictory okay so we can't say that well what we see in nature is one law and what we see in scripture is another law of god uh, and they don't really talk to each other, and they don't really harmonize. No, there is one character of God, there is one God, there is one law. It's just revealed in two different ways. Uh, one is explicit, one is more implicit. Man's laws, human laws, are supposed to be in subjection to God's law. Because if God's law is the foundation of truth, and it is the epitome of what is good, holy, and righteous, then 
if man's law is contrary to that, what then? What does that say about man's law? I mean, it would seem to suggest that if any human commandment or law is in opposition to God's, then then the human law is wicked uh, and in rebellion to the divine law. So the question is, when man's laws are contrary to God's laws, should they be even considered laws at all? And to <laughs> the answer is kind of, it depends. It's both yes and no um, in two different ways. And uh, allow me to explain that. So first of all, if a person gives a, a wicked law, in that sense, it has the appearance of law. It's structured the same way. You know, they the person writes it down on a piece of paper, let's say. They, they sign it. They seal it. They announce it uh, publicly. And all of a sudden, it becomes the force of law. So it has all the appearances of law, but uh, it may not actually be law in its essence, in what it's demanding and what it's saying. So it can have... It can look like it. It can. It's a. It's kind of like a faux uh, or a facade, if you will, a fake law. Uh, there, it just has the appearance of law, but it really is not at all. And that's where the no comes in. Uh, any law that is contrary to God's law is unholy and unjust. If something is not grounded in God's holy character, it must necessarily be grounded in something else. And there's no. There's no third party. There's no neutral. If it's not holy, it is unholy. Okay, so if it's not rooted in God and in his character, it has to be rooted in someone else. And who is that? It it, it has to be the father of lies. If it's not grounded in the father of truth, it's grounded in the father of lies. All right, so one reference I would give to that, well, actually, I would give a a couple. um, Augustine. St. Augustine and uh, Thomas Aquinas, both of them address this point in their writings. So, uh, and actually Thomas Aquinas, who is a, a, a medieval theologian, uh, quotes uh, St. Augustine, who lived uh, around 300, 400 years after Christ. Both said very much the same thing. So here's what Aquinas says in, his, in his, one of his great works. He addresses it in question 93. He says, Quote, insofar as it, so a law, deviates from reason, it is called an unjust law and has the nature not of law but of violence, unquote. And by reason, he is referring to right reason or the, the way that humans are supposed to think properly as those made in God's image. Now, St. Augustine said in his work on free choice, he says this, quote, it would seem to be that an unjust law is no law at all. Okay, now is there scripture to kind of support this? And uh, one passage I would bring up is Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter six. So I'm not going to read the whole story, but just uh, to kind of do a quick summary, uh, Daniel is kind of uh, you know well to do in the king's court. Uh, the king has some supporters that are not big fans of Daniel, and they want to get rid of Daniel and kind of pretty much all the Jewish people if they could. And so they, they, they come to the king, and they get, they get the good idea fairy, and they recommend um, a good law. And the law that they recommend is that if, you know, for the next 
30 days, uh, no one will be allowed to, to pray to any god or any person except for the king himself, King Darius. And Darius thinks this is a good idea. So they come to him. They say, this is, this is a plan we have, a good law. Uh, let's make it official. And it says in, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, that they say, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So uh, the king goes along with it, whether he doesn't really think about the repercussions of this. He says, that sounds like a good idea. I want everyone to pray to me for 30 days instead of any other god. That sounds great. And when this gets publicized, Daniel doesn't really heed that. He does what he always does. He prays publicly uh, with his window open out, out loud three times a day and gives thanks to God. And when the uh, satraps and the other leaders see it and hear about it, they say, aha, we got you, Daniel. So they go to the king and they say, by the way, king, uh, Daniel is not paying any attention to you. Uh, he's not obeying this law, so we need to enforce it. And basically, the king's hands are tied. The law can't be changed because of uh, the tradition or the constitution of the Medes and the Persians. When a law is given, it can't be revoked. Daniel gets cast into the lion's den, and we know that God protects him. But what I want to focus on is Daniel's response to the king. When the next day the king comes and talks to Daniel, and Daniel is not uh, hurt, here's what he says. Daniel says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So what is that? What is he talking about? When Daniel says, I have done no harm, what is that referring to? Well, did a little research on that. So the original passage is from Aramaic. It's the language of Aramaic. And the, and the word is, uh, I, I believe it's pronounced habula. Habula, um, there. And it refers to offense or crime. And I believe that, that uh, habula is the, is the Hebrew word there, um, even though it was originally uh, from the Aramaic. But either way, it, it refers to an offense or a crime. And when you look at the Greek Old Testament, so I just kind of did that for just, just kind of a gee whiz thing, because at the time of Christ, most of the Jews would have been reading uh, their Old Testament from, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the Septuagint. Even there, the word that is used is paroptima, uh, which means, again, misdeed, offense, or trespass. It's the same Greek word that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 6, saying, uh, forgive others their trespasses. So it's a trespass against the person. So uh, basically, Daniel is saying he did not commit a crime or offense, or a trespass against King Darius. Now, is he right about that? Because technically, he broke the law. It, it had all the trappings of a law. It was signed and sealed by the king. It was made public. It was in accordance with the constitution of the Medes and the Persians. Everything about it looks legit, completely legit. And yet, Daniel says, I did not break the law. I committed no crime against you, O king. No offense, no trespass. Whereas the king's uh, servants, you know, the other the other rulers basically said, uh, Daniel pays no attention to you, O king. So they would say, yeah, you did you did commit a crime. So the implication here, though, 
is that since King Darius's law was unjust, it was no law at all. Daniel broke nothing. There was nothing that Daniel did wrong. He committed no crime. Um, why is that? Because that law has no foundation in God's law. That law is wicked, purely wicked. It may have all the trappings of a law, but it's not a law uh, in its essence. So that's just one thing to keep in mind about, and I think that supports the argument that an unjust law is no law at all. And there's an interesting story um, that takes place a couple hundred years later between um, Alexander the Great and a pirate that he that he captured. So I found this quite amusing, and I think it also um, hits hits the point well. Uh, so for those of you who are familiar, Alexander the Great, Greek king, around 200 BC or so, uh, maybe a little before that, two three hundred BC, basically conquered the known world, overthrew the Persians, and conquered them, Egypt, all the way to India. He he expanded his empire. Um, but there's a story in which he uh, captured a pirate who was basically attacking merchants on the on the seas there. And here is what Alexander says to the pirate. He says, quote, what is your idea in plundering the sea? Unquote. The pirate responds this way. Here's what he says, quote, the same as yours in plundering the world. But because I do it with a tiny craft, I'm called a pirate. But because you have a mighty navy, you're called an emperor, unquote. So I just find that just quite amusing because the pirate is, is giving a, a very strong point here. There's no, there's no difference between him and Alexander the Great. The only difference is that the pirate, is, the pirate has one boat. Alexander has a navy. But they're both plunderers. Alexander has no authority to conquer the world. He has no right to do that. It's not legitimate. But... He's doing it. He's got the power to do it, and he's doing it. So um, just because he has an army and a navy doesn't make his actions any less different, any different than that of a pirate or a brigand. Um, it's just a matter of scale, really, is what it comes down to. So the implication is just because Alexander calls himself an emperor doesn't mean that he has the authority to conquer the world. Um, he has no more authority to do that than the pirate has in plundering the sea. So at the end of the day, if human laws stand contrary to God's law, those human laws are in rebellion against God and they lose their authority. They're not just. They're they're not grounded in law. They're grounded in violence. They're simply the dictates of pirates, brigands, and gang leaders. They could have the appearance of laws and all the pomp and circumstance that that comes around and they look they look pretty cool they look pretty legitimate but at the end of the day they they are nothing they're empty um, one passage from scripture that i find to be pretty um, pretty applicable here or rather descriptive is from psalm 94 in psalm 94 verse 20 here's what uh, the psalmist says it's a rhetorical question quote can wicked rulers be allied with you those who frame injustice by statute End quote. The New American Standard Version says, Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which devises mischief by decree? So the question that the psalmist is giving is, these wicked rulers, they frame injustice by statute. 
Now, just think about that for a second. What is it to, 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 to frame an injustice by a statue, the idea of framing a picture? Could, it, it would be like taking a picture of a pile of manure and putting a frame around it and calling it beautiful art. Like, just because you, you make something look good or you put a frame around it, make it all official, it doesn't turn the pile of manure into anything else. It's still a pile of manure at the end of the day, no matter what kind of ribbon you put on it or what kind of frame you put around it. So um, wicked rulers cannot be allied with God uh, because they frame uh, injustice by a statute, by a rule. They devise mischief by a decree. Doesn't make it any less mischief. Doesn't make it any less um, injustice there. So that is what I wanted to highlight today about the importance of the foundations of law. All human laws need to have the foundations in God's law. God's law either as revealed in, in nature or as revealed in scripture, which they're all the same. It's just that one's implicit and one is explicit uh, there. But now the problem here is, and this is, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, touch on this topic next time, is, well, what about submission, right? I mean, if, if, if what you're saying is true, Eric, if human laws have to be grounded in God's law or they are, or they are no laws at all, how, what, is, what does submission mean? Um, if a ruler makes one mistake that is in, a, in opposition to God's law, does that mean that uh, we get to ignore that ruler forever? Uh, that person should be overthrown? Um, that person is no longer to be considered king or president? Does a ruler lose his or her authority simply because of one deviation from God's law? And if perfection, if perfection of, of a human law, if it has to be perfectly in submission to God's law in order to be legitimate, then what does submission look like? Does submission only, can only take place when everything is perfect? That seems to go against the concept of submission. I mean, submission only means anything when things are difficult. It's easy to submit when things are perfect and the ruler is perfect and the laws are perfect. But what happens when they're not? Um, do we need to submit? And what does that look like? So we'll take a look at that. That's a very important topic there. Um, I think that there's a way to reconcile uh, both submission and the fact that um, an unjust law is no law at all. So anyways, uh, we'll take a look at that next time. So I hope that uh, you found this uh, episode useful to be a blessing to you. Um, I pray that, uh, that you'll join me again next time to look at the concept of submission. And until then, take care.